0: So, last week, we did Daniel 2. You all know about Daniel 2, yes? When I say yes, if you don't, you can say no. <laughs> so, it's not an intimidating yes, okay? I don't know what you mean by that. So. Daniel I chapter 2? I've read Daniel 2, yes, but I'm not sure what you're focusing on. Oh, just the uh, the dream oh, yeah. and the four kingdoms and the stone cut out without hands that smashes the toes of the image yeah? So, we're good? we're good on this? Okay. Uh, just to go through the main details of Daniel chapter 2, well, the, the actual dream, you have four kings or four empires. We say kings because, remember, Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. He's an individual king. Uh, but it's all also pretty clear that it involves not just the king, but the kingdom over which he reigns. Then you have the uh, the, uh, the feet and toes, the iron mixed with clay, and uh, the toes, you're told in verse 44 of chapter 2, are ten kings, okay? So, remember that, they're ten kings. So, please understand that the image is being used uh, just to portray successive chronological kingdoms, okay? And kings. And don't don't really take too much for, you know, Nebuchadnezzar being the head and the Roman Empire being the thighs and so on, okay? Don't kind of read too much into that. I, I mean, I, I just wouldn't press it too much, because toes are little biddly, tiddly things and, and you, they, if you kind of keep in mind toes are not as big as you know, the torso or the head, then you might get a, a, a reduced idea, a reductionistic idea of the ten kings, do you see? So that's why I say that. But it's a useful model the uh, the the four kingdoms are babylon medo persia greece and rome and as i said last last year i probably did say it last year but i also said it last week that uh traditionally in jewish interpretation and in church history they are they are the four kingdoms that have been identified it's only when you get modern scholarship generally, that things start to get confused because modern scholars are often very good at confusing themselves and confusing others by missing the obvious. Um, So, that's what they are and I think they're pretty clearly that. You get some evangelical scholars who will say that uh, you have... Babylon, then, then Media and then Persia and then Greece and they cut out Rome because they don't have a fifth kingdom. You know, that's, that's utterly dumb because the Medo-Persian Empire was the Medo-Persian Empire. They, for most of their history, they were together although the Medes were chronologically a little bit before. They rose to power before. Um, then, remember, you had this vision of the stone cut out without hands which uh, smashes the image, it disintegrates the image, the wind blows the dust away completely so that they are no longer to be found. The image is located upon this earth, this planet. That's important because we have to recall the creation project. God made this planet. And he hasn't given up on this planet just because of the fall. This planet is still central to his plans. Not only that, but you have this theological truth, which is very important, which is often forgotten about, and that is, God doesn't make mistakes. So, God doesn't launch plans and then, you know, like launching little boats and then they get torpedoed and, and and sink, and you think, well, okay, we'll, we'll try another one. That's not the way God operates. God, even if it sinks, it's going to come back up again because it's the one he launched. Do you see? And things don't defeat God. They may, because of the... Um, Mysterious workings of providence—they may seem to outdo God, they may seem to uh, to thwart Him, but they don't. So, if He makes a decision, it's a good decision, and He has the power and He has the ability to um, to put it back on track. Do you see? Very important that we understand that. This world is not a ramshackle vehicle to get lost people to heaven. And when it's done, you know, boom. God's done with it because it has no intrinsic value. It does have intrinsic value. If I can do what I'm not supposed to do, but I did right at the very beginning of these uh, courses, Colossians 1 16 and 17 says, all things are made through Christ and. What? For him! For him! For him. Well, who made them? He did, yeah, he was involved, but, but if they're made for him, then who is the main object of, or the subject of the, sorry, the subject of that making? The Father which means that the Father has made the earth for the Son. Do you see? Yeah. So, don't think that man is going to spoil and destroy what the Father gave to the Son. Do you understand that? He, he's going to mess it up for a while, but here's the wonder of, uh, of the plan of God. That the one who uh, was, uh, who owns this planet, this world, this universe, the one who owns it becomes a man and dies in it, but rises again in it and is coming ab- again uh, back again to it to reign on it. Does that make sense? Of course, it does make sense. And I'm, I'm biting my lip here because I want to go off on a big rabbit trail, <laughs> okay? But I'm going to halt myself, stop myself and, and uh, move on because we've got a lot to do today. What was your question? Well, just looking at what's going on, it's really important if you listen to the news to pull fast. To what yes, you said. yes, yes. And the more of that you grasp, I think the better it is, it kind of helps you, it informs you during these very troubled times that we're living in, yes God has not abandoned ship so this, this stone that, that uh, destroys the kingdoms of this earth then grows up into an everlasting kingdom okay, that raises a question, because we're this side of history we've got to decide how we're going to interpret the stone and we've got to interpret how we're going to interpret. What did I say there? We've got to decide how we're going to interpret the kingdom. This is how many Christians since the time of Augustine have interpreted the stone and the kingdom. The stone is Jesus Christ at his first coming. Now, if the stone is Jesus Christ at his first coming, he didn't come and smash any kingdoms. So the only interpretation is died on the cross, rose again and is now reigning over the whole world, the whole shooting match, match spiritually. Do you see? That's the basically the amillennial postmillennial post-millennial uh, interpretation and at, at some time the earth will, the physical earth, will come into conformity with what's happening spiritually. Do you see? But that is not reflective of anything that's written in the Old Testament context. And it's certainly not reflective of what you would expect from this image. These uh, parts of the image are anchored in the earth. They're physical, real kingdoms. They cannot be identified historically that means that the stone that destroys them and grows into a kingdom on this earth, where they were, it replaces them, has to be a physical kingdom on this earth. Do you see? Not some ethereal kingdom where uh, wishful thinking Christians are saying, Christ is reigning now, even though it's pretty clear that he isn't. So, uh, that's what we've, what we find. And please remember that the kingdom that the stone, that comes from the stone is an everlasting kingdom. It's the last kingdom on this planet. So is, is, does that comport with an interpretation of the first advent? I do not think so. So, slight rabbit trail here, although it is important that uh, I say that this, although once we get to the New Testament, I'm going to say this quite a bit, the key interpretative blunder of Christians, he says arrogantly and, you know, all the rest of it, too self-confidently and... Take it any way that you want, because I, I understand that, that I can be wrong, okay? But I'm still going to be dogmatic about this. And if God wants to change my mind, fair enough. But I just don't think he's going to. Not on this, on lots of other things, yes. Um, the, one of the biggest interpretative blunders that Christians make is trying to fit... Uh, the prophecies of the Bible into the first coming. One of the things I have highlighted to you, we maybe need to do this a little bit more, okay? But one of the things I've highlighted to you is that the Old Testament emphasizes not the first coming, but the second coming. That's the big deal in, the, in Old Testament prophecy. And unless you... Um, Uh, unless you are patient, unless you are willing to just listen to God and stop asking dumb questions about the church because we're not talking about the church here. It's not even come up in the Old Testament, okay? Just let the Old Testament say what it wants to say and we'll deal with the church when when we come to it. Um, unless you're going to interpret the Bible that way you are going to misinterpret the Bible and you are going to spiritualize the Bible and you are going to sound pious convincing yourself that this is the biblical way of doing things even though that's not what it says do you see? so having said that we will go to Daniel 7 so, Daniel chapter 3, um, Nebuchadnezzar gets this wild idea in his mind to build an image. wonder where he got that from. Uh, what's interesting about that image, by the way, um, if you want to just look at it real quick, is uh, three times... In the passage, the instruments are named. At um, verse 7, at that time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, um, and they fell down and worshipped it, it and so on. Well, here we are, sorry, verse 5, not, not verse 7, ignore that. Verse 5. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music. So you've got one, two, three, four, five, uh, symphony in all kinds of music, six things, yes, mentioned. They fall down and worship the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Okay, if you look at verse 10, you have the same instruments again six musical thing, thingamibobs mentioned and then verse 15 you have the same thing so you have three sixes you have a 666 six, six there, do you see that? it's kind of interesting and it has to do with an image and worshipping an image and I can honestly tell you I've never seen anybody else notice that which probably means it's got nothing to do with anything but <laughs> but Makes me feel good, so uh, I thought I'd mention. <laughs> All right. Chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar. Is, um, he, he is dealt with by God and he seems to have some kind of a conversion experience maybe even uh, acknowledging who the true God is. Chapter 5 is, uh, of course, Belshazzar's feast and so on. And uh, chapter 6 is Daniel... Um, in the lion's den and then chapter 7 probably the central chapter in the book of Daniel so this is where we need to, uh, to focus some attention in the first year of Belshazzar king of Babylon Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts that's a very good idea okay Rather than trying to memorize it and so on, he wrote it down, the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Uh, If I have time here, I'll try on the last lesson, although I probably won't be able to do it, to say something about apocalyptic literature, okay? You talk about um, you talking about an old nag that has been used and used and used in order to confuse God's people. It's this whole idea of apocalyptic literature. Um, and again, because I'm not as smart as many of these guys, I can say what I'm just about to say, okay? <laughs> Which is, the word apocalypse means to reveal, to unveil. Their view of apocalyptic literature is to obfuscate and cover up and mystify. And they get it from liberal interpreters, reading too many liberals, not being willing to to believe what the Bible says. And uh, everybody gets in a flat-footed mess because uh, then you get different scholars having different ideas of what an apocalyptic is. And apocalyptic is not the same as apocalyptic literature. And apocalypti- apocalypticism, they're all different, slightly. So, again, you hand it over to the scholars, they're going to give you back something you can't make any sense of, you actually read the word of God which is written to you in the first place and you can, you know, and doesn't say apocalyptic literature anywhere and you can actually start to understand it, you've just got to be a little less intelligent than these great scholars who are trying to confuse you (laughs) so, this is supposedly apocalyptic here because you have these visions and you have these beasts and you have um, you know, the, the messengers and all of these other things. Well, no, you just, basically you have visions and this is the way God's communicating. It doesn't mean that it's a particular genre of anything that you need to study particularly and has its own rules of interpretation. Just read what it says. Where am I? Verse 4. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. That's really weird. I understand. And this is not a study of Daniel, so I'm not going to explain all this stuff. But it's a beast, and it undergoes some kind of a transformation. It's still like a lion. Okay, but things happen to it. Suddenly another beast a second like a bear it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and they said thus to it arise devour much flesh well that's it I mean the main idea is that you've got a limping bear Okay. after this I looked and there was another like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird the beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it alright fair enough After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. There's no description of this beast, okay? There's no description of it. We don't know what kind of beast it was. Uh, It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Alright, so if this had all, this is all that, that Daniel had related to us, would none of us be any the wiser, would we? We'd think that, you know, he's been on the magic mushrooms or he's, you know, it's like, great, so he's seen these weird things, you know, maybe he should stop eating pizza before he goes to bed or something. I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out of the roots. And there in this horn, there were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Okay, all very strange. None of this thing you see, you experience, it's obviously symbolic. But what we require here is some kind of interpretation isn't it? otherwise we you know it's whatever it is whatever you want to make it and for those that don't pay attention to the Bible they do make it whatever they want to make it I watched till thrones were put in place and the ancient of days was seated his garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was pure like wool his throne was a fiery flame its wheels notice that its wheels of a burning fire. What does that remind you of? Ezekiel 1 and 10. Yes, exactly. Ezekiel 1 and 10. There we go again, you see. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court, whatever that was, the session was seated and the books were open. Okay. The four beasts are obviously symbolic. This next vision is not symbolic. It's literal. Some kind of court going on in heaven. I watched because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. Okay, so the, 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 uh, the horn is speaking words. I watched till the beast was slain. So the, the original beast, you know, the the horrible beast that's slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame as for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time and scholars go backwards and forwards about that, I've got a foggiest idea what that is, Uh, a time seems to be if I can jump ahead a little bit, a year but I don't know what a season is. A season is kind of a period of time at a, at a particular time. Jesus says it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has put in his power. Do you remember in Acts 1.6? And that season has to do with the, the particular period uh, and, or time period when God is going to act in a, that certain way so it's not specific verse 13 I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the son of man this is Jesus' favorite self-identification when he's calling himself the son of man all the time he's saying that during his earthly ministry he's telling people I'm this guy Okay. You cannot say that Jesus was just a lowly Galilean and just got (coughs) caught up in the hysteria of his day and got himself crucified. He claimed from the very beginning to be this messenger from heaven. This one who would be the king of the whole world. Coming with the clouds of heaven. So what did he say to um, the high priests? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, Mark chapter 11 and how did he reply? You say that I am and henceforth you will see me coming the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. They knew he was referring to this passage. First coming or second coming folks obviously second coming this is where the emphasis is they brought him near before him that is the ancient days then to him that's the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed okay now uh, verses 13 and 14 are are really key in understanding um, well biblical prophecy and understanding the role of Christ and and understanding what's going on in the mission of Christ in his first coming and what's got to happen in the second coming this is clearly focusing in on an individual who will rule this world, this planet. It's not ruling in heaven. He's coming from heaven to rule here. And this individual is going to set up an everlasting kingdom. He comes, and we'll read more about this, he comes after the four beasts are destroyed. Now clearly, so far, we, don't, we haven't been told that the beasts are kingdoms but we have been told that this, the son of man who replaces them does have a kingdom. Do you see? So we're, we're starting to get some inferences here or draw some logical inferences about what these four beasts might symbolise. <coughs> I Daniel was grieved in my spirit within my body and the visions of my head troubled me and I came to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things well I'm jolly glad that he asked those great beasts which are for are for kings or kingdoms Malach, which arise out of the earth so where are they? they're earthly yeah They're earthly. But the saints of the Most High, whoever they are, shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. So the saints of the Most High, which haven't been mentioned hitherto, are going to possess the kingdom which the Son of Man brings about. There's an extra detail for you. Do you see? The kingdom that this man sets up is going to be a kingdom where... um, the saints of God, the sanctified ones of God will dwell with this one forever. (coughs) Where is it? It's on earth. Okay? It's on earth. You don't go to heaven forever, folks. If you die today, you go to heaven. That's great. But don't think you're going to spend eternity there. Because heaven's going to come to earth. Okay. Think about that, the creation project. Again, just just putting a little thought there because we haven't really dealt with that yet. So, uh, verse 19. Then I wished to know the truth about the fourth beast which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. And the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up before which three fell. Namely, the horn that had eyes and a mouth and which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows, which is another detail that he's just added. I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. There is a bit of detail. That's kind of important because here's a bloke. Or is it a bloke? It's, a, it's somebody, something that is making war against the saints who are going to eventually inherit the kingdom. Until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favour of the saints of the Most High. Well, we do see books open and a court seated in verse 10. Do you see that? And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Which kingdom? This last kingdom that's an eternal kingdom. If it's an eternal kingdom, again, it's either a spiritual, ethereal kingdom or it's a literal, physical kingdom. There's nothing in this passage which suggests it's merely a a spiritual, non-corporeal kingdom this is earthly language, this is physical and you can talk all you want about apocalypticism. This is simple to understand if you just give it a little bit of time. So, thus he said, verse 23, the fourth beast, now he wants an interpretation, so this is it. The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. Alright. If the fourth beast is a kingdom, then the other three are kingdoms. And shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces. Well, the Roman Empire didn't trample the whole earth. It trampled the Mediterranean world. Okay? But that is the world of the Bible. Okay? That is the world of the Bible and please remember that in your interpretations. Now certainly when it says all people's nations and tongues and the whole world there in verse 13, that seems to be the entire globe. But here it's not necessarily that, it's just the, the, the world as was then known and experienced. you see? <coughs> the ten horns are ten kings oh hello so verse 44 of chapter 2 had ten toes who were ten kings and it also had four kingdom or four pieces of the body of the image that were kingdoms and here we've got four animals so it could very well be that we're supposed to compare these two visions which we'll do in a minute The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, from the last kingdom. And another shall arise after them. That's the little little horn. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. This is a person who obviously is is a ruler. He's very powerful and he speaks against God. And shall intend to change times and law. I'm not quite sure what that means. It could. It probably means what it says, actually. I mean, how that applies, I'm not sure. But are you aware, by the way, that they've um, in? Uh, I'm not. I'm doing what I normally don't like to do. Okay, so don't read too much into this. But, but um, what they've done in Mecca is they've knocked down Muhammad's house and, the, and so on. It's like, a bit like the Mormons in Salt Lake City and knock everything down and build things over it. Um, they've built this enormous clock tower there. And uh, the biggest clock in the world is there, in the centre of, of Mecca. And the reason is because they want to make Mecca the new Greenwich, so, right now, it's London, Greenwich Mean Time. What they want to do is they want to switch it to Mecca. Meccan Mean Time. Um, that's what they want to do. Anyway. So again, is that, that's kind of a bit of newspaper exegesis there, so don't take, <laughs> don't take that to, to heart too much. So, um, where am I? Oh yeah, so uh, where is it? Times and seasons. I've I'm, I'm lost. 25. 25, okay. He shall speak great pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand. Well, that's not very nice because remember verse 21 says he's going to prevail against them for a time times and half a time Um, Okay, a couple of things here who on earth could the saints of the most high be the church well if you asked Daniel and the people around you know Babylon at the time this was given and said well this is the church they would say what on earth are you talking about Of course it's not. It's got to do with... Who are, the, who are the saints of God in the Old Testament? The children of Israel are. In this context, of course they are. I mean, we're a good way through the Old Testament now. If you haven't picked that one up, you're a pretty bad reader of the Bible. So, the saints are obviously uh, what other prophets have called the remnant of Israel, and that certainly fits in with what we've seen about the remnant who are preserved for God and will indeed inherit this great kingdom on earth, which is what we've been studying, I mean for week after week, prophet after prophet we've been looking at this stuff but the saints are given into his hand alright, well hmm Israel given into the hand of a particular leader, that I can't recall has come up before probably has in different passages and there are certain areas in in, uh, Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah that could speak to this, particularly in Ezekiel. And I haven't had time to look at those prophecies. Um, Although we did look at... um, No, we didn't. No, we didn't because we couldn't do that. But... What we have done is that we've seen that there is going to be a time of great and intense persecution for Israel before this great kingdom and the branch sets up this kingdom. Do you remember that from Jeremiah 30 for example? I've tried to call your attention to it and if you've been making notes like you should have been making notes you've got the scriptures down too which show you that. Time, times, and half a time. What on earth could that be about? Um, Well, let's do a little bit of logic here. Okay? Um, So... I hope, first of all, that you, can, you see that time is a, is a specific period. Why does that have to be a specific period? If it's a non-specific period, you might as well just call it time, not bothered about this. Do you see? Yeah, time would just mean a period of time. Well, it could be a thousand years long. So, why go on with about times? This is superfluous, you see, if it's, if it's not, this is not specific. Secondly, this must be two or double of the first. Why? Because if it's not, you don't know what it is. So it's again, pointless. It's not an interpretation of anything. Do you see? If this is not double, it could be ten. But how would you know? Maybe it's five. Maybe it's ninety-nine. The only way that this makes any sense is if it's two of those. And that this is specific. And then half the time... Again, if this is non-specific, what's this? There's no point to this, is there? You see? So, this has to be half of a time or the first bit. Well, then all you need to know is a denominator. Do you see? That's probably not the right word but I can't think of the right word. So, Uh, It could be a day, it could be a week, it could be a month, and it could be a year. But that's about it. It's one of those. Right. Verse 26. But the court, which, which we've already read about, shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion. Whose dominion? Whose dominion? The pompous guy, yeah, the, the little horn, yeah. To consume and to destroy it forever. Then, 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 verse 27, the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom, kingdoms under the whole heaven. Now that's That's worldwide. Shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Who's him? Yeah, but but we don't call him Christ yet. We call him the Son of Man. That's right, because in text, in the context, that's who he is. We know it is Christ, but just, you know, just to be safe, we just read it, read the account, put it together, and then we try and make sense of it. Um, Unbelievably, to me, some our millennial interpreters are saying that the Him is actually not an individual. But it's the church, because the kingdom's being given to the people of the Most High, and that's the church, according to them. Which means the Him, the Son of Man, is also the church. It's absolutely astonishing what people who don't want to believe, you know, biblical prophecy will do when faced with clear scriptures. You know, it doesn't matter what. What, any, everything else is said leading up to this. We'll just ignore that or spiritualize that and we'll spiritualize this and we'll just make this all superfluous quite honestly. I mean, God could have said this in, you know, according to their interpretation of things, he could have said it in a book the size of um, the Gospel of Mark. Why waste all of this paper? Or tablets or you know, papyrus or scrolls. Why waste all of this stuff? Well, maybe because somebody's got the wrong interpretation and they should go back to the Bible and actually read it and pay attention to it and try and build up a picture of what God is actually saying and they'll see that that picture coheres. Am I sounding cynical? I'm sorry, I'm going to stop now. Yeah. Sounding cynical, that's my cynicism for the, for the day. <laughs> but, but Um, my reason for it is not because these people are are not good and godly and scholarly people it's just because they're wrong Okay, it's just because they're badly wrong, badly wrong and the reason they're badly wrong is they're not paying attention to what the Bible says, they're allowing their independent human reason to connect doctrines together without paying attention to the text, do you remember what I said before about this can I get rid of this actually no I won't get rid of it because I may want to come back to it I will in chapter 12 Um, the way that you're supposed to read the Bible is you're supposed to read it okay and then um, get a a doctrine we'll call it D okay so you, you get your doctrine from the text it's rooted in the text But what you've got to do for your next doctrine is you've got to do the same thing. And the next doctrine, you've got to do the same thing. And then when you've done that, then you can hook them together. Do you see? And that's when you know you've got a biblical doctrine. Now, you're not going to get everything sorted out. There are going to be frayed edges, but at the same time, I'm in the the way, aren't I? At the same time, this is the only safe method of doing things. But this is not what most people do. You can catch them doing this. This is what they do. They read the Bible, the doctrine here, and then they say, ah, that means this. Okay, doctrine. Ah, where does it say that in the Bible? And they go looking for a proof text. This doctrine has not come from the Scripture, it's come from their own autonomous reasoning about the Scriptures. And the way that you can spot it is saying, well, that that, that would mean this. Or if that's true, that would mean this. That's autonomous human reasoning telling God what he sh- needs to mean and what he needs to say. When you do that, or when you hear people doing that, there's almost certainly an error. Okay? Beware of that. Beware of that. It's not that, that, that kind of, it's called deductive reasoning. It's not that that kind of deductive reasoning is verboten. We, you know, I mean, it's important when you're doing systematic theology. But you never build your doctrines by doing that. You first of all get your stuff, What well, I, I call it like you get your stuff on the shelf and then you see what's on the shelf. And then you sort out, then you use your deductive reasoning once you know what's on the shelf. But you, what goes on the shelf is not there because you've put it there by ignoring what the Bible says. And then go around and say, oh, I've got that one in there, let's go and see if I can find that in the Bible. And then what you do with the Bible is that you make it say something it doesn't say. And you get, you do all this horrible proof texting. Do you see? Have you, sat, you know people do that. You think, hold on a minute, it doesn't say that. How can it mean that in that context? It doesn't mean that. All of us have, have seen people do that. It's because they're doing this. And then they say it's biblical. It's not biblical. What they mean is it's their autonomous reasoning going to the text of the Bible to try and find a rubber stamping for what they've already decided the Bible's going to do. And again, I remind you of Eve before the tree. That's exactly what she did. I agree with God here, I agree with God here, but I think this. And because she's independent of God, she can agree with him or disagree with him. Or add something to him. Do you see? The only safe place to be is under the word of God, relying on it, not trying to figure it out for God. That takes you know, it takes effort. It takes a little bit of humility to stay under it long enough for it to permeate. You know, and, and that, let's say what it needs to say and it does mean that you're going to have to be patient because you're not going to get all the answers that you want straight away. But that's alright. You grow in knowledge. But don't try to circumvent what the Bible's saying by misusing the reason that God has given you to tie together things that you haven't found yet in the Bible. That's where the error comes in. It's not biblical, it's deductible. Yeah, uh, it's deductive reasoning. It's inference. And some theologies... Well, why not? Go all the whole hog. Covenant theology is deductive theology and if you've read their books and I've read them ad nauseum for 25 plus years um, I spotted this it's like but you skipped that verse and you skip that text and you do not mention that text and that's not what it says and it's like why, why are they not saying that and they're putting together a picture that looks good and sounds good but you don't know if something's wrong. And why is, why is it wrong? Because it's all deduction. And then they say, it's logical. Yeah. Because God has given us human logic, but human logic is not supposed to have a magisterial function. You know what a magisterial function is? A, a function that decides what is right and what is wrong. Our logic is supposed to be under the authority of the word of God. So we only use it once we know what God has said. Do you see? And if we don't know what God has said, we might speculate, and that's okay. We can speculate. But let's just tell ourselves that we're speculating so that we're humbly willing to be um, corrected. Remember the C4 so C1, C2, C3, C4, C5 stuff. And I said the C4, C5 stuff, that's the deductive stuff where people say, oh, this because of this it must mean this and this must mean this. Okay? And then they go scouting around the Bible to try and find it. And the whole thing's based on human deduction. And the proof texts are not, they're not even good proof texts. And moreover, there are texts that fly in the face of the proof texts. Yeah? Think of infant baptism as a, an example of that. Um, and um, what happens is that when people have, have employed their, their smarts to find these doctrines and find these truths, they, because they link together in their minds, do you see? They think, oh, This is, this must be the truth. I found it, you see? And they invest their own deductions with biblical authority and they will not be moved. They're dogmatic. And because they've, they've used their logic this way and you haven't, they tend to look down on you because you have not grown. You have not seen these things that they've seen. Does this sound at all what you've come up against? Yeah, it's called human nature. Okay? It's the default setting of all of us. The default setting is to be independent of what God says. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust yourself if if you cannot clearly go to a text in context To prove what you are saying God says. Don't trust yourself. Your propensity will be um, to go off on an inference and call it biblical. Yes? This is not cynicism. This is watchmen on the wall. Thank you. That's what I'd I'd rather call it, watchman on the wall stuff. Yes. And we don't get enough of that. Yes. But sometimes it's also cynical too. But so I have to watch watch on the wall without being a cynical watcher on the wall yes okay i 'm still in chapter seven because i 've been going off on wild goose chases here but uh, so verse twenty six the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion that 's the the uh, um, little horn to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and the ki- and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey Him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed. But I kept the matter in my heart. All dominion shall serve and obey Him. That's this guy in chapter in verses twelve and thirteen the son of man who comes, who is sent from heaven and Jesus yes I'm jumping into the New Testament but you all know this he identified this as himself and when he was identifying it in himself and saying you will see he's talking about the future and he's not talking about his first coming because he didn't come in the clouds of heaven he went to a Roman cross And he didn't set up a kingdom. All right. Chapter 2, you've got four kings which equal four empires. Chapter 7, you've got four beasts which equal four empires. Chapter 2, you have ten last kings who are the ten toes of the image, okay, which comes from the fourth um, bit of the image fourth kingdom chapter 7 10 horns which come from the fourth beast the terrible beast now you have more information added that you don't see in chapter 2 you have this little horn that displaces three horns and pursues the saints of the most high that's added information that you didn't get in chapter 2 we have descending chronologies in both of these accounts and in the first Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome there's no reason not to think you have the same four kingdoms Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome especially when you compare uh, some of the language as well Um, which we won't do because I'm running out of time then you have the stone cut out without hands that that swells up into, destroys all the world's kingdom and swells up into this everlasting kingdom. In chapter 4, chapter 7, chapter 7, you have the Son of Man coming. He doesn't come, he doesn't arise from the kingdoms of the earth. He comes from heaven. You see? So in a sense, it's the symbolism of the stone cut out without hands. He doesn't come, it doesn't come from the same Area the same place as the earthly kingdoms, and yet it has an earthly kingdom. That's what you see in chapter seven too. Son of man comes from heaven, is sent from God to to have His kingdom. So the Son of Man is the stone. Do you see? You have. Uh, the setting up of an eternal kingdom. The only decision you have to make, and you don't even have to make it here in Daniel, the only reason you have to make it is because you've got a New Testament, which he didn't have. And that is whether you're going to spiritualize that last kingdom, or whether you're going to stick to the context and stick to what the prophets have already declared, stick to the covenants as they... Uh, match this, stick to the promise of this future ruler who we've identified as, a, as the branch and ha- is himself a covenant. Isaiah 42 remember? And uh, what you get is the expectation now even more clarified of an individual coming from heaven to set up a kingdom on earth. And the saints of earth, particularly the saints of Israel, will be in that kingdom. That fits in with everything we've seen so far in uh, these two courses. There's absolutely no reason not to read the Bible this way. And somebody wants to come in and push the church into the picture. The church isn't in the picture. Get it out. It will come in when it's good and ready to come in. But don't you, or me, or anyone else, introduce it because it's not here yet. And what I've been trying to tell you, you know, you said, um, Connie, you said it's, it's Christ. And you're right. But then I corrected you and said, it's the Son of Man. Why did I do that? Because I'm pedantic? Yes. And also, I'm pedantic because... I want you to to learn to just wait. Do you see? Just build the picture up. And you'll find that that it actually does come together and doesn't need your help to put it together. (laughs) Now, chapter 8. We can't do it. We're not going to do it. Chapter 8 it talks about the ram and the he-goat and all of that stuff and uh, people say that the um, the horn the little horn in chapter 8 must be the little horn in chapter 7. It's not. The reason is and this is if you've been paying attention the ram is identified as Medo-Persia and the he-goat is identified as Greece and the Little Horn comes from Greece. That's not where it comes from in chapter 7. It comes from Rome. So it's not the same guy. In chapter 8, it's it's prophesying Antiochus Epiphanes who did come through in that direction when the uh, kingdoms kingdoms of Alexander the Great were split into four kingdoms. It came through the Seleucid part of that empire. Do you see? But it's not the same So, again, pay attention to what the Bible is saying and you won't trip up. There are some intimations in chapter 8, and maybe a kind of double idea of prophecy here, I'm not quite sure. People go backwards and forwards about it, so do I. Uh, That there is also this double entendre, like you see um, perhaps in Ezekiel 28 and so on. But um, chapter 9, which we'll go to now, is the prayer of Daniel for his people. Who are Daniel's people? Israel. Israel. Israel, Israel, Israel. And they've sinned and they're not saved. He con- he's, what is he doing? He's confessing their sin. And said, we've deserved all this. Verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant. Of course he keeps his covenant. Daniel knew he kept his covenant which even in this desperate hour Daniel can depend on the covenants of God because God doesn't change his covenants. You can too. You know, when you're not doing too well on the spiritual treadmill you can call on the covenant of God the new covenant that's been you take it when you take communion you remember it you're supposed to you take communion when you take communion you say to God God you are this is your covenant that you've made with me this is your grace that I'm remembering here I don't deserve this but this is your grace and you'll stick by your word That's my hope. Uh, And we don't have time for all of this, so we're going to go to verse 13. As it is written in the law of Moses, there's a Mosaic covenant, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God. This is Yahweh, and what's interesting about this Is that that's the covenant name of God. Okay? And it's only in this chapter. It's only in chapter nine. When Daniel is suing God to be to remember his covenant to Israel, calling on his covenant name. Therefore the Lord, that's Yahweh, has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us for the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. Verse 16, he talks about your city, Jerusalem. According to covenant theologians or quite a lot of them down through church history, this is no longer his city. Daniel's got it wrong. He's given, he's forsaken Israel, he's forsaken Jerusalem. Not according to Daniel. Your sanctuary, verse uh, 17. Your sanctuary. Verse 26c, look at verse 26. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay, the sanctuary in verse 17 is what? I'm not giving you any help. What's the sanctuary in verse 17? Daniel's praying for. Your city, Jerusalem, your sanctuary. What's he talking about? The temple. But which temple is he talking about? David's temple, yes? The one that's going to get flattened. So that's a literal one. Same as in Ezekiel 11. Okay, that's a literal sanctuary. So... The sanctuary in verse 26 later on is going to be a literal sanctuary. Do you see that? Alright, let's jump ahead here. Um, verse, you understand that the preamble there in verse 20 through 23 and um, Gabriel says here 70 weeks are determined determined, this is a strong word in Hebrew, "hatak," means to cut off, like like to measure something. Yes, verse twenty-four. Twenty-one, right? Twenty-four. Twenty-four. You know, you're not even on the right chapter. I'm in Daniel seven, Daniel nine, Daniel nine. Sorry, guys. I I do this. I just I just go on, and I just expect that you are. Yeah. Not a mind reader, because I believe I did say chapter nine, but you may not have uh Yeah, you know, maybe just going too fast here. Yeah. Seventy weeks are determined. See that word determined? Or whatever you've got? Decreed, Decreed yes. Mm-hmm. Strong word. That's what's called a hapax. Um which you don't have to remember, but it means that it's only used once in the Bible. Yeah. And uh, it means to cut off or to decree or to decide something particular. Do you see? So, it's not just this loose kind of uh, decree, it's a particular thing. For your people, who are Daniel's people? Not the church. Who's the holy city? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay, All all you need to do here is actually read the first part of Daniel 9 to know what he's talking about in the second part of Daniel 9. Um, To finish the transgression, there are six things here. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Well, remember the saints of the Most High, uh, they're righteous they're righteous in chapter 7 so they dwell in this kingdom, this everlasting kingdom of righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy so, what do we do with this bunch of things here well, again it just kind of depends how we're going to deal with uh, the text Daniel is writing after you know most of the prophets have already spoken, so you're supposed to come to Daniel with a you know an arsenal of knowledge that's going to inform you about what he could possibly be talking about here. And again, we don't have time to go into all this. I'm sorry, this is not a Daniel um, commentary, but. Um, <coughs> Now, there are two types of sevens, heptads, that are used elsewhere in the Bible. They're either days or years. I'll just tell you that. Seventy weeks are determined for your people, for your holy city. So, this is either seventy days or seventy years. or, or sorry. Seventy weeks of years. Seventy weeks of days or seventy weeks of years. To finish the transgression... Whose transgression? The Jews. How do you know that? I just told you. But more important than me telling you is that that's what Daniel is praying about. Yeah. To finish the transgression of Israel. To make an end of sins. My goodness. Yeah, it's a real biggie. To finish, uh, and I've already done that one, to make a reconciliation for iniquity. So not just stop sinning, but reconcile. Now, reconcile the people back to God. Have you read about that before? Has there been something about this in the prophets about God reconciling the people to himself? I think so, rather. Yeah, of course there has. You know, uh, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37 are good examples of that. Isaiah 2 is a good example of that if you want some of the references over there. To bring in everlasting righteousness. That wasn't done at the cross, folks. The only person who's everlastingly righteous after the cross is Jesus and he's not even here. I'm not everlastingly righteous. You're not everlastingly righteous. I'm a dirt bag. I'm a saved one but I still am one. Everything that, that I am that's any good is not because it's me. It's because of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? Everlasting righteousness is certainly not in the church. Have you read Paul's epistles? <laughs> yes. All right. Everlasting righteousness means everlasting righteousness, which we've read about. Isaiah 11. And this, Daniel 7. To seal up vision and prophecy. Well, this is a vision. This is a prophecy. So, there is a time when vision and prophecy is going to be sealed up. Why would there'd be a time when vision and prophecy is sealed up because there's no longer any need for vision and prophecy. Do you see that? Because in the kingdom, there won't be any need for it. You're in it. That's what the vision and prophecy is talking about unless you're a replacement theologian when it's talking about the first coming. So, to anoint the most holy. What is the most holy in the Old Testament? It's not Christ. It's a place. It's The most holy means the holy of holies. That's what it means in the Old Testament in every reference. Even, even replacement theologians who hate being called replacement theologians, so I'll call them supersessionists, which means replacement theologians. (laughs) Even supersessionists say that this means holy of holies. Trouble is, the trouble is they have no way, you see, of because they want to read everything into the first coming of Christ and they have no use for a temple and a sanctuary in the eschaton because they don't believe the priestly covenant, they make that Christ because the temple doesn't fit in with their theology. Do you see? But everything here that's been spoken about is eschatological, in other words, it's second coming stuff. All of it, all six. Anointing the most holy means anointing the new sanctuary. Hey, I've read about a big sanctuary that is going to be built in Israel. It's right there in Ezekiel 40 through 48. In a portion of scripture the size of 1 Corinthians. How can you miss it? unless you think the whole vision is Christ and the church, in which case, you don't need to take a book the size of 1 Corinthians to write about it, you can do it in half a page. I'm getting cynical again. But, <laughs> but the reason I'm getting cynical is because this is just common sense stuff, folks. Okay? It's common sense stuff. But common sense goes out of the window often when we are not under, we're not relying on the word of God. Okay, verse 25. Gabriel says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, whenever that was, okay? Some people say that that was 445 B.C. Some people say that was 458, 457 B.C. Um, some have it, uh, Cyrus's um, command. Okay, we don't need to answer that right now, but it's certainly, uh, certainly, it's uh, uh, the time of um, the uh, the Persian kingdom. Okay, it's Cyrus or Artaxerxes or one of those. Until Messiah the Prince. Oh, Messiah the Prince. Now you have the anointed, the, this, this, this particular individual. Uh, perhaps, I don't know, maybe this Messiah the Prince, the pers- he's the person we've been waiting for or, or Israel, Jerusalem is, has been waiting for. Maybe he's the son of man of chapter 7. Maybe he's, a little, he's the stone of chapter 2. Yes, it says Meshach. Got it. What version have you got? What version do you have? Oh, and, and the English Standard Version. Okay. The English Standard Version is a good version. We use it at our church, but covenant theologians are mainly responsible for its translation. So, anyway, so sometimes you've got to be careful because, um, you know, I can't go into that, but... Uh, But you've got to watch it sometimes. Um, It's a good translation. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Well, why why didn't he just say 69 weeks? Make it easier for people like me who have to add those two numbers together. Um, It's because probably there's something in the seven weeks, and if we say the weeks of years, that would be 49 years. Okay, between whatever that decree is and something that happens 49 years after that decree, not exactly sure what that is, but if the decree was the later one, say four, five, eight, something around that, it would bring us down to about the time that Nehemiah would would give over the um, the reins of power to the next governor of Israel. Not sure. But uh, that's, that's perfectly possible. Again, you're not told what the significance is. It just says you've, you've got seven weeks here and then you've got 62 weeks, which equals 69 weeks. If they're weeks of years, years you've got 383 years thus far. So if you know the uh, the command to restore and build Jerusalem, see how Jerusalem's in the middle of all this, by the way? then then you can figure it out. Something's going to happen after three hundred and eighty three years of that. Well the Messiah the Prince is going to crop up, is going to show up. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. That could be that's the seven weeks. Okay, it probably is. After the 62 weeks, which is after the 62 plus the 7, Messiah shall be, what? Cut off. Well, that's unexpected. It doesn't say particularly, it doesn't say, by the way, that he's going to be cut off in the 69th week. It says he's going to come on the 69th week. He won't be cut off. It says after the 69th week. Do you see? He'll be cut off. Do you see that? Some of you are shaking your head. When he shows up, Messiah shows up, he's not crucified straight away. So that's why it says after the 69th week. So you don't necessarily have to Um, calculate till the time of Jesus' crucifixion if indeed this is Jesus all you need to do is calculate to the time of Jesus what? what do you have to calculate? his birth? no was he Messiah when he was born? Baptism. baptism there you are, there we are, good that's when he became Christ Okay, that's his anointing there. Okay, yes, that's what what you need to do. And uh, indeed, if you go from four five eight four five seven, you come around uh, and use uh, three hundred sixty five day uh, uh, years. By the way, which is probably what the Jews used. Uh, you come to A. D. twenty six which is what most people believe is uh, the time that Jesus started his ministry. Again, if you want to, there are different permutations of this. If you go 445, you end up in 33 AD, which is okay. But that would be the time that Jesus is cut off, okay? If you go prophetic weeks, uh, you know, the the lunar things, then um, you come to AD 32. That's the Robert Anderson did that, so any way you come on Christ okay either way you, you figure this out it's Christ but I, I prefer the 458 457 one because that brings you to the anointing of Christ there, you see mm-hmm. and he dies after that it's cut off after Why would that would they use the language cut off I mean that sounds like on the cross it does but again, you've got to read the text, okay? It doesn't say um, after 69 weeks he's cut off. I was just, sorry, it doesn't say uh, uh, the 69 weeks and, until he's cut off. It says until Messiah the, Messiah the Prince, there is 69 weeks. So you count 69 weeks and then you'll find Messiah the Prince, yeah, because of the... Remember I said the other seven that you got to add to it? I'm just... Yeah, you know, I'm conflating a bit. So, um, because of that, um, it says after the 69 weeks, he's cut off. So, he he, he comes on at uh, the 69th week and he's cut off sometime after that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So, that would make that would make the 69 not necessarily a marker to his, his death the time that he's cut off, but to his arrival, his anointing, his Christ, his, when he became Christ I prefer that interpretation, I might be wrong ok, I might be wrong if you want another, if you want Sir Robert Anderson's interpretation at 33 AD, that's cool, if you want Harold Herner's interpretation of AD 32, that's cool too uh, if you want... Uh, Uh, Paul Feinberg's and many scholars interpretation of AD 30 which I prefer then you're good on the third okay whatever it's Christ Uh, let's uh, move on here then it gets it seems to get a little tricky okay He's cut off, but not for himself. Well, that would mean he's cut off for somebody else. He dies on behalf of other people. Do You ever notice that? This is the substitutionary atonement right here. And the people of the prince who is to come. Well, who's the prince who is to come? This is where I wish that Daniel had got his notes a bit more, you know, straight. So, he would have said, oh yeah, what I mean by the prince who is to come is the little horn that I mentioned in the other vision. He doesn't say that, so um, who are these people? Obviously, the, the little horn doesn't act on his own. He's got a bunch of people with him. But let's see what they do. We can decide whether the people of the prince who is to come are goodies or baddies. That will help us a little bit shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, that's not good. (laughs) So, they're probably baddies. Okay, so it means the prince who is to come is not Messiah the prince. Unless he's bad and has a bunch of bad people following him. We don't know who the prince who is to come is, but at least we can have a guess that he's bad. And we know a bad guy who is going to be a king who's going to destroy Jerusalem and the people are going to be given into his hand. So, I'm betting it's him. But I'm willing, again, we have to, these, there are a bit of frayed edges here and we need to admit that, Okay the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined so there's a war going on a flood I believe it's probably a literal flood but it could be just a, a, a figure of speech of a you know just a complete desolation at the end and then, then he who's he well he can only be either Messiah or the prince who is to come and the prince who is to come is the nearest person to the he. And so that's who it is. And we, again, if we read, we know it's not Messiah because, again, this guy's a baddie. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. If if it's a, a week is a year, i sorry, a week is... Uh, a day in the, so a week is seven years. Why don't I just get it right? Seven years. In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So He's going to do something in the middle of the week that's going to bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Well, um, that can't be... um, in the, in the Old Testament economy, in what we've read so far, this cannot be a good thing. Because the priestly covenant guarantees that there will be um, offerings. Do you see? So, if you interpret this as Christ's death that, and the, temple, the veil of the temple and uh, no, use, no more use for the temple um then and you know you, you, you give us a book of Hebrews as a, an example of that. The problem with that is that that's not the way the Old Testament envisages um, god 's work. it envisages god's work as yes isaiah fifty three here in the very same chapter here in chapter nine uh, there's a substitutionary death going on, but there are many, many scriptures that speak about the sanctuary, the temple. Now, in Daniel's time, the temple gets destroyed. In Christ's time, the temple's still there, that's the second temple, and it eventually gets leveled by the Romans in AD 70, uh, you know, 40, nearly 40 years after the time of Christ. Um, So what we have here is a little dilemma. And we'll it's okay to keep it as a little dilemma. I'm all, I'm alright with that. Some of my people that, that um you know I used to hang around and, and know about me. This is what annoys them about me, because I'm not I, I'm willing just to say I'm not willing to be completely dogmatic here. Here's what I think. Okay, but I'm not trying to prove a particular system of theology here. Um, In the middle of the week, all right, so that's three and a half days. That's three and a half years. He shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. The he, if it's uh, the prince who is to come, he's bad, which means bringing an end to the sacrifice and offering is bad which suits what we've already seen about um, the priestly covenant. On the wing of abominations, that that means that's great wickedness, shall be one who makes desolate, even unto the consummation, until the, the, the end of things, which is determined is poured out upon the desolate, or the desolator, actually, in Hebrew, the desolator. The desi- who's the desolator? well the, the little horn is a desolator ok so if it's a little horn then again we're back just before the second coming and the, the prince who is to come is a little horn and the people of the prince who is to come are the people who are over uh, overrunning Jerusalem for a particular period of time we know that the particular period of time is time times and half a time from chapter 7 Which, if, do you see where I kept this up? If you're going to make sense of this, must mean one plus two plus half. Three and a half years. If, If it's a year. It's three and a half. Well, you get three and a half, and it actually fits. The middle of a week would be three and a half years. Do you see? So that's where my money goes right down, down there ok um, chapter 12 and I'm sorry we have to flick through this but chapter 12 chapter 12 is part of a vision that is given and the, and the speaker is this great uh, angelic person a very overpowering person who appears to Daniel and gives him these um, these predictions. At that time, Michael shall stand up. Michael is, uh, well, he's called the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. He's an archangel. No, he is the archangel. There isn't another one. As far as what Bible is concerned. There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. Well, where do we come across that kind of talk? We come across that in Jeremiah 30. You see? And reaching into the Gospels, we come across that in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse. Jesus basically quoting it. He's certainly alluding to it. And he's alluding in the context to his second coming. Not to the Roman armies coming in in AD 70. And so, this is a concentrated time of persecution for your people, Daniel's people, Israel. That matches the little horn's persecution and the people are giving into his into his hand for a time, times and a half a time, three and a half years, if it's indeed three and a half years. And it's, it fits, do you see, the picture that we've already had of this concentrated time of persecution for Israel, just before New Covenant times and the and this great New Covenant King. And the fulfillment of the biblical covenants comes to pass you have this concentrated, fiery trial. This is surely what is being alluded to here. Verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's the resurrection. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. Are those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. During this time of persecution, it seems as though the, the saints of God will still be witnessing for God and will be turning people to God. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, knowledge shall increase. And then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this riverbank and the other on that riverbank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, and he's the guy that pops up earlier in this vision, who was above the waters of the river, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? These are big deals. Then I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times and half a time. Oh, well that locks us into chapter 7. Doesn't it? So this, again, we're, we're right. We're getting, we, we've basically got it right. And we haven't had to do, I hope at least, uh, I'm correct in saying this, we haven't had to do a great deal of mental gymnastics to get there. We've just had to pay attention to the text and, and be patient. Try and recall what we've read before. Put things together. When the power of the holy pe- people has been completely shattered, all these shall be finished. Well, that again... After three and a half years of the persecution of the little horn, you would think that the power of the holy people will be shattered. When they're at their lowest, that's when it ends. Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, "Oh, my Lord, what shall be at the end of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. So, the end is either the end of time, or the end of um, the end of the kingdoms of chapter 2 and chapter 4 just before the arrival of the stone or the son of man, do you see? Many shall be purified that's good, made white, that's good refined, that's good when you threw it, but the wicked shall do wickedly And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. It's the wise that are turning people to righteousness. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, when's that going to happen? Chapter 9. By the baddie. Remember? So this can't be, I don't think, 70 AD. If we believe the Son of Man coming in chapter 7 and the stone in chapter 2 is the second coming of Christ and not the first coming of Christ and the time of the end certainly seems to be the time when these kingdoms are destroyed and the eternal, literal kingdom on earth is set up then we're talking second coming here which pushes all of this thing back into the future our future And the abomination of desolation is set up. Is that what you've got there? Is set up. Okay, chapter 9, you have the abomination abomination that makes desolate, but it's kind of, you know, we're not sure what that is. Here, it's a particular thing that's set up. This is what Jesus is referring to when he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, let him, let the reader understand. Do you see? And then flee, get out of there. This is it. When's it going to be set up? Just before the second coming, at this time of persecution, and it says there shall be one thousand two hundred and ninety days. Well, um, three and a half years is three hundred. Is one thousand two hundred sixty days? So where'd the other thirty days come from? Not really sure, quite honestly. Not really sure, but there's work to do. There's obviously uh, work to do. There's patience, and there's, there's things needed to be set in order before the kingdom starts in in earnest. Blessed is he who waits. Maybe this waiting is is like this this. Uh, really frustrating waiting when you you know god 's working, you can see God doing things and yet he 's not brought it about yet and comes to the one thousand three hundred and thirty five days that 's another forty five days because that's that one thousand three hundred and thirty five days that it seems is that that's the crucial end. That's the consummation. That's when the Son of Man sets up his kingdom. That's when everything's cleared away. That's when uh, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of God and his Christ. I mean, totally, completely. Rewrite the history books, throw the old ones away because that's that's the past. That's That's when man was in control and he made a big mess of it And we're not going to even think about that anymore because we're now going into the time where the one who owns this world in the first place and is the rightful ruler of this world is ruling the world. And the people in the kingdom are the people who should be in the kingdom. Even though chapter 65 of Isaiah and 66 of Isaiah and places like that we know that there will be children born yes yes and those children, some of them will sin they'll be sinners but the people that enter the kingdom will be righteous but you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days, do you have any problem in the resurrection of Daniel I asked you about that, about David and Ezekiel, didn't I I don't have a problem with Daniel being resurrected again and, and serving again on Earth. Do you? It fits in with your worldview. I hope it does. What? Is, is that a question? In- it's it's uh, well in theology. I mean,
1: are there people that don't? Yes, are there
0: people that hesitate? They hesitate because their theology doesn't imagine this. They, we all go up to heaven. Okay, So they haven't thought about a context in which the resurrection actually works on, in this world, you see? So what we've, what we've found, and I don't know in, in your notes, maybe somebody who's a really detailed note taker like Mariana over there, um, can start putting all of your notes together and put this composite picture together for us remember like Mike did some weeks back now we've got a lot more information but it still gels, it still comes together and it still links in with the covenants doesn't it? we've not had to change our stride we haven't needed to switch interpretative horses and gallop off in another direction here we're still going the same direction, we're still using the same basic tools of of hermeneutics, interpretation, we're still following the covenantal outline and it's actually yielding quite a lot of information for us. And what it's doing, have you noticed this? More and more, it's converging on this person. Yeah, all, I mean, Israel, still there, the covenants and all, all the things that will happen but the person who's going to bring this about is now this, this person who's been identified as the Messiah, the Messiah, the Anointed One of God. He's the one who's going to do it. So, what you have as an overlay to all of this covenantal picture is a, uh, a Christological, uh, worldview. But it's not a forced one where you're reading Christ into all the all the texts of the Bible, all the nooks and crannies, even when you know he's not there, really, but he's appearing isn't he he's coming he's just looming over all of this covenantal picture and it's wonderful that's that's far better it's far better to just allow the Bible to do that and to to kind of penetrate the mind and the heart that way than to piously spiritually read Jesus into every part of the Bible and, and spiritualize the Bible. I think so anyway. So, um, any questions or observations before we start? Okay, next week, uh, we have to get our skates on. So, uh, we don't have a lot of time. Um, Zechariah is where you need to be. I want you to read the whole book of Zechariah. Okay? The whole book of Zechariah. And um, for those of you that, that want to, to kind of put some effort in here, you've, you've got enough now to be able to recognize themes to be able to add to the picture that we've already got. Yes, you're going to run across more weird stuff. Chapter 5, you know, these stalk like women and so on. Um, It does get a bit strange, but just push past it, will you? Okay? God's not trying to confuse you. Um, There's stuff here that's really easy to identify if your mind has been trained in this covenantal path and you'll pick it up you will, you'll pick it up so try to do that try and identify the covenant when you read Okay. Oh, this, this reminds me of, this is the Abrahamic covenant here you know, this is a certain part of the Abrahamic covenant here this is a Davidic covenant this is a priestly covenant maybe here this is uh, this is new covenant stuff. Maybe there's some Noahic covenant stuff in there that you'll notice. Put it together, okay? You can do it. And so, uh, so next week, providing Gina's not having a baby, um, we will uh, we'll meet again and we'll we'll do Zechariah, okay? And then uh, what we can we'll try to do in the last week is that we will we will try to, to really bring all this picture together, which is why I could really help with uh if you guys could put your minds together and, and give us a big uh notation chart of everything that you've found is composite. Okay. I mean you paid for this course, I mean so you know do a bit of legwork here for us, for the class. And, um, Mariana, it's not just you that I'm picking on. (laughs) Um, And, uh, yeah, try and give that, give that out, or or we'll we'll go through it, but be ready for it in the last week. And then I'll also try to cover uh, a few other things before the summary. Um, Things like uh, apocalyptic... And, um, you know, maybe I'll read you a couple of covenant theologians to show you what they do with all of this material.